So, um, what do you do when somebody really, really wrongs you? Sit and plot how you will get even. I want to take a, a one Sunday look at the book of Philemon today, so I might give you a head start to go and find that because it's, it's embedded there in your New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Just back up one book and you'll be there. It's a tremendous story of a couple of individuals who lived in Colossae, where we get the book of Colossians. A group of people who lived in Asia Minor, or today we, of course, know it as Turkey. And we encounter this situation um, that requires forgiveness. Perhaps one of the most critical subjects in the Christian context is this matter of forgiveness, of the giving and receiving. We generally talk a bigger theological game about forgiveness than we live. In fact, the book of Philemon was one of those few controversial books of the Bible that originally when they were assembling what should be in the canon of Scripture was one that they thought should be left out. The argument was that there's nothing really in Philemon that's very theological. <laughs> that there's nothing in Philemon that really talks to us about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit overruled. And we have a phenomenal book that talks about both of those things. There's lots of theology and there's lots of Jesus. One of the key verses that has been, as is so often, difficult to translate and therefore often misused because of the translation that we have is the sixth verse of this book, which is really the key to Paul's argument and why he makes the case for forgiveness. And... Um, we're going to read the whole book in a moment, but it's a whole book. It's just, it's just one chapter, so don't panic. But, but I want to look at the verse 4, 5, and 6, and I want to put in context verse 6, because 6 is critical for us to gain the impetus for why the Lord wants us to know this story and to gain some important theological truth from it. I always thank my God, the Apostle Paul's writing, by the way, from prison. This is really a companion to the Philippian epistle. He's writing from prison in Rome, now to a house church in Colossae. I always thank God, 
my God, as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, and if you have an NIV, I'm going to make some changes here, that you, in the fellowship of your faith, will have a full understanding of every good thing in Christ Jesus, every good thing we have in Christ. Praying... He's going to come up in a graphic now. Praying that you, in the sharing of our common faith, will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. The case that Paul is going to make to the characters of this story is that we need to live out our lives on the basis of a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. In other words, how we live, how we can live, how we should live, is on the basis of every good thing we have received from Christ. What you have received from Christ, in other words, and understand you have received from Christ, pass on to others. Make available to others. Some of you, because of the translation that, that the NIV has adopted, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. I've taken this as an evangelistic text and said, in sharing your faith, faith, you will understand everything that Christ has done for you. That's really, you know, that's true. It's just not true of this text. It's just not what this text is saying. This text is saying if you have, if you are a fellowshipper in the faith, if, we, if you are one who shares legitimately in the faith of Christ, then may you participate in every good thing that you have because of Christ. So then how should we treat people? How should every good thing in Christ... Every good thing that we have in Christ shape the way we treat people who have wronged us. That's what Paul is going to answer here. How should we, on the basis of our understanding of every good thing we have in Christ, how should we treat particularly someone who has really wronged us? That's what we want to give our attention to. The story here, of course, is a story of two guys particular by the name of Philemon and Onesimus. And I want you, if you can, to put your name in the story somewhere. Probably Philemon. Instead of Philemon's name, put your name. And instead of Onesimus's name, put the name of someone who has deeply wronged you, particularly in God's family. So me and that person. It's a story of a runaway slave. We'll talk about slavery in a moment because you won't probably be able to hear anything else until we do. It's a story about a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus who ran away from Philemon, a slave owner, who was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Philemon was the leader of a house church in his own house. So Philemon, or Onesimus runs away from Philemon, and now he's a runaway slave. In fact, he's a felon. 
Because in Roman law, a runaway slave was punishable in any way the slave owner chose all the way to capital punishment. Runaway slave was at your disposal to do whatever you wanted with them on their return to you. Onesimus runs away from Philemon and we'll find out in the providence of God that for some reason Onesimus leaves Colossae and if you have a geographical map in your head of Turkey coming all the way across Macedonia, Greece, finds himself in Rome, you know that boot in the Mediterranean? Italy finds himself in Rome and happens to find himself in the presence of the Apostle Paul. Now Onesimus is not a believer. But he comes to and meets up with the Apostle Paul and Paul leads him to a life-changing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philemon, a friend of Paul, loses a slave who runs halfway across the Mediterranean and bumps into Paul, and Paul leads him to Christ. And no doubt the conversation went something like, by the way, Nesmus, who do you know? Who are you running from? I'm running from a guy by the name of Philemon in Colossae. Philemon in Colossae? He's one of my best friends. I know this guy. You need to go back now to Philemon. Paul, I can't go back. You know what happens to a runaway slave? No, you need to go back. And I'm going to write a letter to my buddy Philemon, and you're going to take the letter with you. And so as Paul is wont to do, this isn't going to be a private letter. And I want this letter to be read in front of the whole church in his house. <laughs> so now you put your name in this thing. And you put that other person's name who's wronged you. And now we're going to read the letter in front of the whole church. You good with that? Let's read the story. Paul. Now this is a letter, remember. Now you've got the, you know the story. Think of everything that's being written here. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, that's his wife, our sister, to Archippus, that's his son, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints that you in sharing your faith will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love, I then as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. By the way, Paul was in his 50s. 
I don't think he's an old man at all. Do you? Brett? No. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a man and as a brother in the Lord." So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask, and one, more th one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He signs off exactly the same way he did the Philippians. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we come before you this morning with uh, open hearts. Uh, you've perked our, or piqued our attention in this matter of forgiveness because it is a very daily reality. Lord, um, in a room like this, you know that there are multiple stories, multiple hurts, multiple wrongs, brothers and sisters mistreating each other, brother against brother, sister against sister, hurts, bitterness, pain, years of disconnect, genuine wrongs. separated hearts, and the church hobbles along in a state that lacks the fullness of your blessing, that lacks the, the, the outreach that it could have, the impact that could happen to our children. because our hearts grow cold and hard. And so, Lord, I pray that we would infuse ourselves into the text in whichever character we are presently, and that we would, based on our fellowship in this faith together, 
operate based on every good thing we have received in Christ and not on our natural instincts, O oh God. For you have saved us for better. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I think some of us might be thinking, and understandably so, that wait a minute, who really is the wronged party here? Philemon's a believer, and he has a slave. Nesimus runs away. Maybe Philemon's the one who should be apologizing. One thing we need to be careful about as we, because if you read through the Bible, and we've been challenged with this, as you know, if you're a believer, you've been challenged with this surely from the very beginning of the scriptures all the way through. There's this matter of slavery, this, this relationship that humans have with each other, and that the Bible makes no attempt whatsoever to condemn It does absolutely make clear statements about the treatment of people. And when someone becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, things change. We need to be careful not to look at the Bible, not to look at the Scriptures, not particularly not to look at this story through the lens of our recent experiences in, say, the North American or U European context of modern, what we call modern-day slavery, the kind that occurred in the U.S., Europe, from the 1500s till sanity prevailed. And it was done away with. The slavery we're talking about in the Onesimus Philemon reality was distinctly different from the slavery that all of us abhor and reject and find repugnant and absolutely in opposition to the heart of Jesus that occurred, say, 100 years ago or 200 years ago or whatever in our context. The stealing of people from a country and bringing them to the new world and turning them into slaves. There's, there's, a, there's a complete distinction between the two kinds of slavery. But let's understand something about the, the economy of the New Testament and even of the Old Testament. The, the class of people called slaves. Most of those people today are us. We work as slaves of an employer. The, the, the slavery class of this particular story were administrators of the home. Musicians were slaves. Um, different tasks were slaves. The only people who couldn't be slaves in the New Testament context were politicians and military. And, and the slaves came from all different nationalities. In some cases, they were, yes, 
conquered from another land. And as far as a slave owner was concerned, they would say, I, I rescued them from dying in the war so that they could come to my home and now serve me. And whatever you think of that, that was the economy of the time. And from their moral perspective, they were saying, I rescued them from sure death. Surely being alive and serving as, as, as my house servant is better than dying. Now, we would have a very different orientation, a very different understanding of it. But please understand, the virtual economy of the Roman, Roman Empire was based upon this system of slavery. Uh, uh, as many as one quarter to one third of people would have been slaves. That's a lot of people. And, and when you were in the marketplace, you wouldn't necessarily be able to know, know the difference between someone who was a slave and someone who was a free person. And much of the language, of course, of the New Testament in particular is talking about our slavery to sin versus our freedom in Christ and, and free from our sins now to become a slave or a servant to Christ. We living in our context have no idea of the extent or the depth or the meaning of what it means to be a slave to Christ. They absolutely understood that. It's about ownership. But there are a number of distinctions, and I want to make sure we make this clear, between the slavery that was endured by God, and by the way, not created by God, endured by God, it was still the class systems of human beings is is a state of our fallenness. But the distinctions between that kind of slavery and the slavery that was done away with. There's at least four distinctively different things. The slavery that occurred, let's say, in the, in, in the, in the, North, America, in the North American context was almost always cruel. The slavery of the New Testament context was rarely cruel. It didn't make sense to treat an economic asset cruelly. Uh, An administrator of your house, the accountant of your business. You understand what I'm saying? There's a whole different different picture. You need to get a whole different picture. The the slavery of, of, of century ago or several centuries ago here in North America was always racial. The slavery of the New Testament was not racial. There were people from all... You could sell yourself into slavery. You you could do that. And and regularly, Roman citizens were also... They would sell themselves into slavery for a particular uh, opportunity to be taken care of. Or for them to be able to take care of debts they had. That's not the case that happened here in North America. In North American slavery, the slaves were denied education almost exclusively. In the New Testament slavery, they were never denied or rarely denied education. In fact, it was like your employees. You wanted them to advance. They were a greater asset to you. 
And in the North American context, slavery was always permanent. In the New Testament context, it was reg slaves regularly became free people. They could, in fact, they could, in fact, purchase themselves out of slavery. They could take the, the income that they received by gratuities or, or just gifts or whatever they would get, and they could purchase themselves out of slavery. So it's another context, another era, but I don't want you to get the idea that, that Paul should have written a letter that said, Philemon... Abolish slavery wasn't the same. The reason that slavery finally actually went away, and after about 300 or 400 years, it disappeared as an economic reality, is because people learned that it was better economically to... Um, to give incentives to people to work for you rather than to have people work for you out of fear. And so slavery naturally disappeared because it became economically more intelligent to pay people, to give them incentives for their work as opposed to, to uh, impose fear upon them. Sadly, Christianity has not been the impetus for removing slavery. It was economics. That's another whole story. Another whole sermon. So let's talk about this. The story of Onesimus. We've at least got the elephant out of the room, I think, about slavery. Sort of. So let's talk about ourselves. Let's talk about our own lives and this whole, in, this whole reality. What gets in the way of allowing the gospel to repair our relationships? Because that's really what Paul is asking for. He, he's saying, look at Philemon. Onesimus has now become a believer. And you are a man of the gospel. And I'm going to send him back to you. And I want this relationship restored. And I don't want you to exercise what you could do. I want you to receive him as a brother. So what gets in the way of us not offering to one another forgiveness? There are a number of things. The gospel, see, not only saves us, but it should change us, and particularly how we treat people. So why is forgiveness so hard for us? And it is. I've been shepherding people for a long time. And this subject comes up a lot. I just can't forgive them. I just can't. Why is it so difficult? Why do we have to work so hard to find it in ourselves to give grace and mercy? Well, one of the reasons is because we're competition junkies who prefer justice over mercy. We really are. It became apparent early in my ministry trajectory that youth ministry was not going to be successful for me. Our youth pastor had left and I was overseeing the Christian education department 
And so it fell on me to say, well, you've got to look after the young, the senior highs for the next little while until we find someone. So Lynn and I took it on with great delight. Uh, Six weeks into it, it was abundantly clear that if I stayed in youth ministry, it would be very career-limiting for me. The incident, as I recall it, was something like this. I decided that I would take on youth ministry and be the greatest youth pastor that this world had ever seen. And so I decided to organize event upon event, week after week. It was relentless. The zoo this week. The C&E next week. And on and on it went. And I just thought that kids would do whatever you told them to do. (laughs) Didn't have any of my own yet. So um, I'd planned this phenomenal event. And uh, we were to arrive at the church, meet meet the kids at the church and everything at, say, 6.30. So at 6.15, I arrive. There's lots of cars in the parking lot. I'm very excited. I'm ecstatic. The kids are here in great numbers. Only to find that their cars were there, but there were no kids. They had apparently organized another event, piled in some other cars, and took off early. And left myself and Lynn and the two other youth sponsors in an empty parking lot or a parking lot with some cars and no kids. So I did what every good budding youth pastor would do. Got down on my knees, prayed blessing on the kids. No, actually... That would have been what I would do if every good thing in Christ was functioning in my life. I decided, let's check these cars out. So, sure enough, one of the kids left their car unlocked. And so, I don't know whether it was me or who it was. I don't think it was me. We got this bright idea that what we would do is trash the car. With confetti. You know what confetti is? I don't know if we even have that anymore. Used to throw it at weddings. Little pieces of round paper. So we loaded ourselves up with as much confetti as we could find. And we demoed this car. It was in every spot it could be. About... uh, Two, three days later, I get called up to the senior pastor's office. The one thing we neglected to think about is that the car wasn't the kid's car. (laughs) It was the parent's car. And now when they turned the car on, turned on the blower... 
there was confetti blowing out, and when they turned on the heater, there was burnt paper smell, and there was huge problems. And I was ceremoniously dumped from youth ministry. <laughs> See, I, I was of the impression that when someone did something to you, you not only get even, you bury them. <laughs> I didn't realize that I was there to disciple the kids, not defeat them. And our natural tendency is to be, or at least mine was, to be a competition junkie. Insist on justice instead of mercy. A few pages back in your Bible, though, we find out something about God. In verse 12 of James chapter 2, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I wish I had have read that back then. Eh, then I would have been a youth pastor. I never wanted to be one anyway. <laughs> Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, are you not thankful that the Lord is that kind of God? That his mercy triumphs over judgment? See, we want to continue to hold some sort of superior moral high ground. We believe some justice should be... Listen, you don't know what that person has done to me. Justice. They, they deserve justice. And God's word says to us, wait a minute, not so quickly. You have been extended mercy by the living God to extend mercy. Well, not only were we competition junkies, but we're prideful addicts to determining blame. Forgiveness gets no traction regularly in the Christian world because we want to spend so much time deciding who is wronged or who is wrong or who is most wrong. And, and we sit back and forth saying, I, I don't know about forgiveness. I'm not sure how much I have to forgive. Maybe, maybe I'm not the one who has to forgive. Listen, Philemon was a slave owner and Onesimus was a runaway slave. There was plenty of sin to go around. Sooner we rush to forgiveness, the better for all of us. Or, or maybe it's because we're grace-blinded. It is most disturbing when Christians resist forgiveness. Because our very lives are at the mercy of forgiveness. Do, do you realize this? When you really think about this in our relationship with God, our very lives are at the mercy of God's forgiveness. The only reason that we live, the only reason that we will live eternally is because of the forgiveness of God toward us. So we are at the mercy of the forgiveness of God. Paul was wanting for sure to upsell that reality to Philemon. Philemon, do you get it? Do you understand? I mean, when you break this story out, it is the gospel. You should expect 
You should not expect God to do something for you that you are unwilling to do for someone else. That's why we better not rush to the Lord's Prayer very quickly. Father, forgive us our debts. Finish it. As we... Just pause there. As we forgive our debtors. We, as God's people, are crying out for the forgiveness of God in the same way as we are forgiving others. So what does that say if we don't forgive? What does that mean to us if we don't forgive? So what does this look like? Honoring every good thing we have in Christ. Let me make five key observations real quick. Philemon was awarded the opportunity to do a good thing. The every good thing that we have in Christ, he was offered that opportunity. Every time someone comes to you or to me and seeks forgiveness, we have been granted by God an opportunity to do the good thing. To actually play out from our lives what it means to to live out the full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. A wrong process of being righted. In this case, Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus had run away. That's not the way you get free. But you notice what Paul says here. I want you to look at verse 8 and I want you to look at verse 14. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Paul says, I could pull the apostolic authority card out and say, I can order you to do this. So why didn't he do that? Why didn't Paul say, Philemon, look it, I'm the apostle. I'm telling you, you need to forgive this guy. Why didn't he do that? He says in verse 14, why? But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Why? Why did he do that? Why does God present to us an opportunity for forgiveness and then leave it to us? Because it is the gospel, not coercion, that really frees us to do the right thing. What Paul was seeking here is to mine out of Philemon's heart a genuineness in Christ. Philemon, I could tell you, it says, like, we could tell you that you have to do this. But, but Philemon, I'm not going to do that because I want to give you the opportunity to demonstrate that Jesus is actually real in your heart. This is important for us in our relationships with one another, our our parenting skills, how we do things. This matter of the gospel changes our lives if we really belong to Christ. We don't have to go around bossing each other around and say, you have to do this, or putting pressure on to do this, although... 
Paul extended a certain amount of emotional pressure. <laughs> if you're reading this, you can see it. After all, Philemon, you only are a very life. I mean, you know, I'm not going to force you to do anything. But by the way, buddy, you owe me your whole life. There's a certain amount of, you know, there's a certain amount of emotional persuasion, shall we call it. But ultimately, he didn't pull the card of, of being an authority over Philemon and just says to him, I want you to have the opportunity to from your heart. And that's, why is that so important? Listen, if I forgive somebody begrudgingly, is that forgiveness? It's not. Okay, if you make me forgive them, I'll forgive them. No. It comes from a deep place. A deep understanding of who we are and what we have in Christ. In fact, he has already written a letter to Colossae, to the Colossians, and he said, this is who you are. Pastor Calvin was praying today, saying there's all kinds of people out there telling our kids who, who they are. That's true. But thank the Lord, our kids know that God has told them who they are. And we are reminded over and over again of who we are. And in, in Colossians uh, 3, 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, listen to this, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put in love, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. You want to know who you are? This is who you are. Holy and dearly loved by God. And then granted every good thing in Christ Compassion. These are the things you've been granted. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiving. Why, Paul, should I do this? Because this is who you are, Philemon. What a horrible example I was to those kids. A disaster. A complete disaster. We are called to be better than that. To love, to grace, to mercy, to justice. That's who we are. And it comes from our heart. And he says this to Philemon in 4, and to the whole church, by the way, as I said, I always thank God, verse 4, as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Or in verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Key observation number two. When relationship restoration between estranged believers is treated by the church as urgent, the cycle of evil in communities is halted. The very definition of a Christian is someone who has faith in the Lord and love for all the saints. You can't convince me or anybody else, and certainly not the Lord, that you love the saints if you won't forgive them. And it's, it, forgiveness, forgiveness is 
among the most powerful tools we have granted to us by the Lord to stop the cycle of evil in a community. It is the most powerful tool we have. If you don't forgive, bitterness happens. Resentment occurs. And the writer of Hebrews said, and it, that bitterness bears, it, its roots go deep and it defiles many. The lack of forgiveness cycles. It, it continues to give momentum to the cycles of evil around people's lives. And, and the reason he made this a church matter and not just a private letter to Philemon, you know, Philemon, I'm going to give you a private letter and I'm going to hope you do what's right. Now, I, I think the reason he put this on the line, names the guy Philemon, Onesimus, puts it out there, is because Philemon, you must do this. As a church leader, you must do this. You must you must demonstrate what it looks like to stop the cycles of evil in a community. My people, Jesus says, are not going to be like that. That's not the way we're going to be. And the love and faith that he had for the Lord and the saints was put on, on the line. It was being tested. Now, keep in mind, think about Philemon for a second. What was he risking? I mean... What was, the, what was the potential that, that he receives back Onesimus and forgives him and, 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 and they have a hug and, and everything's good? Well, number one, he was risking economic ruin. He said, how, that's a little extreme, isn't it? No, think about it. If Philemon had uh, other employees, we'll call them, in his household, slaves, and they get the idea that... Uh, well, all we really have to do is run away, claim we've come to know Christ, and this guy's going to have to free us. You know, we don't have to ask for, we don't have to ask for forgiveness, we, or we don't have to ask for permission, we'll just seek forgiveness. So, Philemon, you know, his whole household now, uh, not only that, if Philemon starts to just forgive a runaway slave and nothing, no, nothing happens, what about all his other buddies in the city? Hey, Philemon, you know, we've got lots of discontent now going on because of what you've done. Not only that, his own instincts of justice. Where's justice in all of this? This guy cost me money. He ran away, left me in the lurch. I didn't have things done that should have been done. This guy cost me money. That's why Paul says, hey, if the guy owes you anything, put it on my account. Because he did owe him something. And then the law was on his side. The Roman law was on the side of Philemon punishing Onesimus to the extreme measure. Or at least something. So what do God's people do? And daily we face these kinds of, uh, of quandaries. What are we going to do? There's what's legal and what's legitimate and what's rights versus redemptive responsibilities versus what it means to really be a child of God and the cost that it might be to me. We have these daily dilemmas in our lives. Paul didn't address any of those subjects. You know why? 
Because for him, forgiveness was worth the cost of anything else. Thirdly, real forgiveness requires replacing anger with real reconciliation and relationship restoration. Look at verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Here's the thing. Paul is talking about real forgiveness, not just plastering over the problem. You know, we... Our idea sometimes of forgiveness is, uh, yeah, let's just, you know, let's just agree to forget about it and just walk away. Paul is showing us here the need to actually replace the anger that forgiveness is all about in the first place. If, if, if you just, on the surface... Agree to disagree or agree to walk away or say, well, just, let's, just, let's just cover it up. Let's not just go there. Let's not. All you're doing is burying your anger. And when you bury your anger, it continues to be toxic toward that relationship. It, on and on, you're actually a volcano waiting to explode. Forgiveness is a complete release of what that person owes you in every way, including emotionally. It's, I'm replacing my anger with forgiveness. That's a, it's a replacement. That's what it is. When God forgave, forgives us, the wrath of God that was on us because of our sin has now been forgiven. He has now replaced his anger with his forgiveness. Never again to hold it against us. And that's what he's telling us here. Fourthly, so healing can happen, restitution may be required, but for restoration and not retribution. Why did Paul even send Onesimus back? Because in order for forgiveness to fully function, that person who has wronged someone must face up to their wrong. Now, I want to tell you that this... This um, particular incident of forgiveness doesn't cover every possible conceivable uh, event. Sometimes people don't seek forgiveness. They don't come back or whatever. This one is when someone comes to you. They have wronged you and they come back to you. Because we must be able to see the fact that this story is our story with Christ. Think of this picture. Philemon as the father. Onesimus as us. Paul as Jesus. We have offended the father. We were runaways. Offended the father. A debt that we could not pay. And Christ comes and pays the debt that he didn't owe to take care of a debt we couldn't pay. Paul says, I'll do that for you so that there could be restoration between 
the one who owed the debt and the one who was wronged. This is our story. Every time there's a forgiveness, every time someone comes to us and asks us for forgiveness, it's the gospel played out for us. It becomes our story. We become that example of the gospel where someone comes and owes us a debt and we have this opportunity now to respond to that like God has to us. Finally, as it relates to advancing the gospel, the church must view herself as outrageously, as, a, as an outrageously gracious, unprivatized community. This was an open letter to the church. And the work of redemption should not be done in secret. Look, at all eyes are on Philemon. This letter is read. Can you just, just we're, we're done. We're, we're, we're right there. This letter is being read. Think of this letter being read, and I'm Philemon. And all of your eyes are looking at your pastor. And so all eyes are on him. What? is our leader going to do? And every time this situation presents itself to you, it is always bigger than just you and that person. Always. Because there's always more involved and more people involved. And in this particular case, the greatness of God's stories like this center around the sheer impact and magnitude of influence that doing the right thing has. This wasn't just going to be about Philemon receiving back Onesimus. This was going to be about how the church was going to go forward in this case, these types of cases played out over and over again, down through the centuries. Until today. And you filled in the blanks with your name and someone else's name. The exponential effects, brothers and sisters, of Righteousness are startling. When forgiveness is placed before you, seize it for all it is worth. It is most godlike to forgive. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to wade into this great story of of a very relevant reality touches our lives so regularly I pray oh God that we will not miss the opportunity to personalize this today and be an agent of stopping the cycle of evil for your great name's sake, I pray. Amen.
I can tell you that I have had to seek forgiveness a lot in my life. In fact, far more have I had to seek forgiveness than others have had to come and seek my forgiveness. The Apostle Paul said to Philemon, prepare me a room because I'm going to come and visit you. We never did find out what Philemon actually did, but my, my strong suspicion is that he did the right thing. He did the everything good that he had received in Christ thing. Paul applied lots of pressure on purpose, beloved, and I, I will pray that the Holy Spirit applies lots of pressure in your life because forgiveness rejected guarantees two, at least two unhealthy people. It just isn't worth it. Don't live that way. Run to forgiveness. Run to seek it and be quick to give it. And if your name was easily put in that story and the name of someone else that God put on your heart real quickly, then by the power and presence of God's Spirit, go fix this thing, would you? end the cycle of evil let's be a forgiving people that's who we are and if I've hurt you or offended you please forgive me we'll uh, have some pastors here we'd love to pray and talk with you after the service as always if God's got something in your heart you want to pray about let's do that our Father and our God thank you and I do ask that the Spirit of God would apply all the pressure of the divine on this people on my heart Lord if we are not right with somebody oh may we end this cycle of evil and oh may we be people who love and are people of faith and people of grace and people of compassion and people of kindness and people of forgiveness because you have forgiven us far more than we'll ever forgive in Jesus' name I pray, amen.